Our first reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And continuing reading in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Amen. This morning we're continuing on, as Ian has said, in the whole a range of words that the church has been looking at. We've moved on to the word love. First thing I need to say, Paul asked me to say to you, is just because we've moved from welcome to love doesn't mean that you can forget all about being welcoming and warm and uh, inviting to people. The other thing to mention is that there are still some of the cards, and we want you to put testimonies down of how you have been welcomed or how you have felt welcomed. And they will, will not ask that you have to come up to the front and share that, but you might want to. But uh, the cards will be available at the front, and please do use those. As, it, as Ian said, we're looking at this topic of opposition, loving those who oppose us. And in some parts of the world, opposition to Christians may take the form of outright persecution. We're so thankful that isn't the case in the UK at present. And so the focus this morning is not on persecution, but rather opposition from other believers. Because it may come as a surprise to you that all Christians don't agree all of the time. I found a website where people were reporting disputes that had happened in churches they were familiar with. As far as I can tell, they're genuine. But they reported a, a church where there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Another one where there was a dispute over whether the worship leader should keep his shoes on during the service. I didn't notice it. Yeah, Dave had his shoes on, so he, he's okay. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet the church should buy, black or brown, two-drawer, three-drawer, four-drawer. Two churches reported disputes over the type of coffee they served. In one situation, members left the church over the decision that was made. 
Another church had a disagreement over whether they should use the term pot luck or pot blessing. <laughs> and this is my favorite. A church where one member hid the vacuum cleaner from other members who then left and formed another fellowship. They called their new fellowship the Dyson Free Church. No, <laughs> I made that last bit up. That, that wasn't true. We're in the middle of a series examining these key words. Welcome, love, challenge, and grow. And using instances from Acts of the Apostles where we'll see how the church reacted in certain scenarios and what we can learn from the situation that they faced and how they dealt with it. Because a vital part of Christian witness is a life characterized by love. Love for God, love for other Christians, love for non-believers, compassion, passion for God, compassion for people. In John 4, 13, 34 and 35, Jesus prayed, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it's relatively easy to love others who like us, who are like us, who agree with what we say. It's a different matter when people disagree with us. When I was thinking about this, I remembered being in a church meeting once. It was a Baptist church, I hasten to add, when most of the congregation actually walked out because of the vitriol and venom that one member was using as he expressed opposition to a decision that the church leadership had made. We know the expression agreeing to disagree, but how do we demonstrate love in that situation? There's an old verse which goes like this, to live with the saints above, that will be glory. To live with the saints below, that's another story. And unfortunately, that can be the case. People within the church can look at situations, circumstances, interpretation of Scripture, and not always come to the same conclusions. And in those circumstances, some Christians will emphasize unity to the extent that they're happy to put up with a diverse, uh, diversity of belief and behavior, provided that people stay united and together. Other Christians will emphasize the truth of the gospel to the extent that they're willing to sacrifice unity to preserve it. They're so committed to guarding the gospel and their perception of keeping themselves pure that they separate themselves from anyone whose doctrine or behavior doesn't measure up to their standard. Maintaining a balance between grace and truth is a difficult pathway to find and then to follow, but essential if we res to respond to situations of disagreement and opposition correctly. Much will depend on the situation, the nature of the opposition and the disagreement on determining how we should respond because a one-size-fits-all is not helpful. But in every situation, that response should be loving and gracious. There's two situations in Acts that I want us to look at this morning. Very different scenarios, but there are lessons in each that will help us assess the nature of the opposition and the way we should respond in each scenario. And the first one that Claire read to us uh, from Galatians was a doctrinal issue which affected the gospel truth. In previous weeks, we've looked at the issues raised 
by accepting Gentile believers into the new fellowship of believers. Coming from our background, it really is quite difficult for us to grasp the cataclysmic shift in thinking, values, and attitudes that this would have caused to these early believers. For thousands of years, the Jews had believed rightly that they were God's chosen people and that acceptance by him depended on their adherence to the law. Key to this was Sabbath observance, abstaining from certain meats, offering sacrifices in the temple, and circumcision. And to maintain their religious purity, the Jews would refuse to enter into the home or to eat with a non-Jewish person. And if anyone did, then they risked sanction from the, uh, other, the rest of the community and possibly even ex expulsion from it. But a new day had dawned as the early disciples moved out of, Jeru of Jerusalem because of persecution, they came to Antioch. And in Acts chapter 11, we read how they began to share the gospel with non-Jews. We read, Paul records for us, or Luke records for us there, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. As Paul and Barnabas then came to disciple these young believers, they didn't require them to keep the food laws. They didn't require them to separate from non-Jews. They didn't require them to have circumcision. And we're commended in this approach by an earlier verse in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul and Barnabas went to the church leaders in Jerusalem and said, I presented to them, that is the church leadership in Jerusalem, the gospel that I preached to the Gentiles, or be among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. But the issue didn't go away. It was so deep-seated, it remained problematic and divisive for the church leaders. And then in the reading from Acts, from Galatians that Claire read, there's an incident where Peter came to Antioch after previously saying that it was fine for the non-Jewish Gentile believers not to adhere to the law. When he came to Antioch, he withdrew from eating with the non-Jewish believers for fear of the, of the circumcision party. And his stance even led Barnabas astray. And we read that Barnabas joined him in taking this line of least resistance and compromise. And their actions, they were basically communicating that faith in Jesus needed to be supplemented by adherence to the law. A complete reversal of the stance they'd taken earlier. So how would Paul react to this situation, this opposition? What would a loving response be like in those circumstances? Well, we've read how that he publicly rebuked one of the church leaders, one of the main leaders of the early church, an apostle, someone who had been with Jesus throughout his life. When Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. How do we reconcile such a public denunciation of you could almost say even a humiliation for Peter from Paul with the teaching that Paul outlines in other parts of his letters where he talks about displaying forbearance, maintaining the unity of the bond of the Spirit in peace, and the church staying together 
in a way that transcended ethnicity, gender, social status. Surely Paul's being hypocritical, teaching one thing in his letters, but behaving and following a different course of action. Is he not bringing division and disharmony? Well, the key is again in the reading in verse 14. Paul wrote and said, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. When opposition and disagreements arose in the church where Paul believed that there was a denial of a fundamental or foundational aspect of the faith and was in danger of compromising the truth of the gospel, the response he gave was not to show tolerance and compromise, but to robustly challenge. Can this be a loving response? Where there's a possibility of people being led astray into false doctrine, the issues at stake are too high to ignore. John Stott wrote the following quotation. In our generation, we seem to have moved a long way from this vigorous passion for the truth displayed by Christ and his apostles. But if we loved the glory of God more, and if we cared more for the eternal good of other people, we would surely be more ready to engage in controversy when the truth of the gospel is at stake. For Paul, the people who had accepted Jesus and were following Jesus as Messiah had become a new creation. They were adopted into a unified, single, worldwide family, and therefore the practices of circumcision, food laws, Sabbath observance, and temple sacrifices, which had previously functioned as symbols of separation, dividing a separate ethnic group, should no longer be a prerequisite to belonging to this new family. That's why Paul stood up so firmly. Incidentally, Peter and Barnabas were persuaded by Paul. They saw the error of their ways and returned to full fellowship with the Gentile believers, including eating again with them. Now, what are some of the lessons for us today? If someone began to teach today that circumcision was still required for salvation, I don't think they would get many followers. It's a non-issue in our culture in this area. But other aspects of the truth of the gospel are under attack from certain quarters. How can we recognize this and respond in an appropriate way that will defend the truth rather than tolerate errors of doctrine? Any teaching that adds to the fundamental gospel of faith in Christ being sufficient for and the only means of salvation needs to be exposed and resisted. But we should also take note that as well as opposing doctrinal error, the Apostle Paul also taught, both in his letters and in his, his, uh, as his example, that all behavior should not be tolerated within the church when it is at variance with the teaching and the standards outlined in the law. So if you look at chapters such as Acts chapter 15, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 1, the approach Paul gave was that new believers needed to follow the teaching of the law with regard to standards of sexual ethics, murder, violence, lying, jealousy, and stealing. Their salvation didn't depend on their works, but how they lived out their faith was very important. 
In some instances, Paul went so far as to remind and demand that the church exercise discipline of actually removing from membership someone who was straying far away from these truths, such as is the case of the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who had developed a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Paul demanded that the church excommunicate that man. There's much more to say on this topic, but it's too big for us to delve into too much this morning. The main reason I'm drawing attention to it is to endorse what Paul, our pastor, said a couple of weeks ago when he was saying that all people are welcome and must be made welcome and felt welcome in this church. But membership is a different matter. There's standards of doctrine, ethics, behavior that cannot be tolerated within the church. And the loving response is to have belief and practice based on scriptural principles, not those determined by the prevailing popular culture. And it's necessary to maintain the distinctiveness and the purity of the church. The church being in the world, but not off the world. However, such a response must always be done with grace and love. Richard Baxter, writing in the 17th century, wrote the following. In essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, freedom. And in all things, love. The freedom to disagree doesn't mean doctrinal pluralism, relativism in disguise, because it refers only to doubtful matters. The key question is whether our disagreements are over matters which are fundament, of fundamental importance to the Christian gospel and discipleship. And where it is evident that there's variance or, or straying away from Scripture, then the church's response, loving response, needs to be a clear denunciation and separation. The second instance we're going to look at is what I've called judgment calls and relationships. Because at other times, opposition will not be due to a difference of doctrinal interpretation, but to a difference of view over a matter of taste or preference. I heard this story about two churches in the US who were exploring the possibility of merging. They're working through their differences. The place they got stuck on was how to say the Lord's Prayer. One church was used to the tradition of using the word trespasses, the other was used to the tradition of using the word sins. And they couldn't come to agreement, so the two churches decided to remain separate. And the local newspaper reported in this story <clears throat> with the headline, Church A remained with their sins, Church B remained with their trespasses. As individuals in the church were faced with many decisions on which the Bible is silent, what type of music should we use? How loud should it be? What instruments do we play? How many home groups should there be? When should home groups meet? What should be the times of our services? Those are just some examples. And in those areas, we use the way of wisdom, broad Christian principles, sanctified common sense, and other people we trust who will be more objective than we might be. The next situation in Acts reveals a disagreement which actually led to the breakup of a relationship. And we read how Paul and Barnabas separated and went their separate ways. They were very different characters. Their personalities were almost polar opposites. Paul was intense 
driven, once he'd made up his mind about a topic or a subject, it was highly unlikely he was going to change or waver or that other people's views would change him. He doesn't seem to have had a problem with confrontation and being a lone voice on an issue. He was never interested in being high on the popularity stakes or people saying nice things about him. Modern terminology, we, we describe him as a strong character. Barnabas, on the other hand, was given the nickname son of encouragement. He'd be an easy person to be around as he was always looking for ways to help others succeed. He saw potential in people immediately and sought opportunities to help them develop. Immediately after Paul's conversion, it was Barnabas who, who stood by him to the church leaders and did a character reference <clears throat> for someone with such a colorful past. When Barnabas was sent to the changing situation in Antioch that we've mentioned previously, he sought out Paul. Even though Paul, it's estimated there was about a 10-year gap where Paul had been incognito in Arabia and Tarsus, Barnabas went and got him and brought him back to help him disciple these young believers. And for over a year, they worked together in Antioch and saw much fruit for their labors. Then they went, the Antioch church sent them out on their first missionary journey, <clears throat> which was met with a mixture of ridicule, apathy, and severe persecution, but also great responsiveness. The two men obviously complemented each other well, but with such striking personality differences, they must also have frustrated the life out of each other at times. And eventually, an eruption occurred, and the cause was over a personnel issue. On their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had taken Barnabas' cousin with them, a young man called John Mark. The first stop was Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home, presumably an area that John Mark was also very familiar with. And so it was an easy introduction to the missionary lifestyle for John Mark. And it would appear that he coped well. Then they moved on from Cyprus, and they sailed across to the coast of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, to a region called Pamphylia. And we read there that John Mark deserted them. We don't know the circumstances. Was it culture shock, homesickness? Was he unable to keep up with the pace? Was he fear of persecution? Was it spiritual attack? We just don't know. But we do know that Paul felt very badly let down. And so two years later, 18 months to two years later, when they were proposing to go back to these young fellowships, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him again on the journey. Had he grown up during those 18 months? Was he now showing more signs of dependability? Was he less of a snowflake? Was he showing deep remorse over his previous failure? Barnabas, being an encourager, wanted to give him a second chance. Surely everyone deserves a second chance. But Paul was having none of it. He feared having an undependable team member. There was too much at stake. When the going gets tough, as Paul knew it would, you need to have confidence that those around you will be up to the task in hand, as it's very difficult to carry passengers on the front line. And from the distance of time, we can probably see value in both points of view. 
And which side you favor probably is determined by your own personality and whether you tend to be a Paul-type person or a Barnabas-type person. But how should these two mature, seasoned Christian leaders, missionaries after all, have handled this difference of opinion? Surely they should have talked it through, listened to, others point of view, listened to each other's point of view, involved other Christian leaders, shown forbearance. Instead, they had a blazing row. The word that such a sharp disagreement is how the Bible puts it. And the word that's used there is the word that we get paroxysm from, which the Bible gives as a sudden attack or outburst of a particular emotion or activity. You can picture the scene, raised voices. We're not told they come to fisticuffs, but raised voices, blood pressure rising, talking over each other, not really listening to what the other one was saying, a complete inability to accept the other's opinion as being valid. As Roy Keane would say, the red mist descending. The tension became, between them became so acrimonious that the reconciliation, a compromise, became impossible. And they decided they could no longer work together. There was a breakdown in relationship. They parted company. Paul took Silas and headed back to the region of Pamphylia and Galatia, while Barnabas took John Mark and headed to Cyprus. And the reality is that this was a perfectly good, rational outcome, playing to both men's strengths, and God used the situation to his glory. Silas received on-the-job training in cross-cultural ministry, as he and Paul blazed the trail of glory in establishing Christian communities right around the Mediterranean. John Mark flourished under the nurturing care of Barnabas to the extent that Paul would later request when he wrote to Timothy that John Mark was brought to him. Get Mark, 1 Timothy, or sorry, 2 Timothy 4.11, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Paul showed great uh, the ability to accept that Mark had changed and could now be helpful. But the way they came to this outcome was all wrong. A major issue of doctrine wasn't involved. Yet what a poor example they showed to the young believers in Antioch and how to handle a difference of opinion in a relationship. They could have parted out amicably, Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, has written on what he calls good disagreements. And it is possible to disagree well. Disagreements are inevitable, but the key issue is how we respond to them. If possible, steering and looking for compromise win-win situations. There are two sides to an argument. Do we really try to understand the other person's point of view? Paul and Barnabas don't appear to have taken time to try and calm down, reflect, revisit the situation in the cool light of day. No middle ground was sought that we're told about. And there's no record of them involving any others, trying to mediate, or taking time to pray and finding a course of action that would accommodate both perspectives. This was a personality clash that could have been avoided. So, how do we accept, or how do we apply, rather, these two 
examples to our situation today. First one, if it's opposition on fundamental doctrine. There are occasions when that might be so harmful and dangerous to the truth of the gospel that the loving response is to confront. But we must always be so careful. Are we confident that's the truth of the gospel that's at stake, or is it just one of our pet preferences? Do we base our opinion and decision on Scripture? Or conversely, do we just brush the difference onto the carpet and say, well, there's many different points of view on this topic, and all of them are valid? If the truth of the gospel is being undermined, then our responsibility before God is to confront and oppose, but in a loving manner. There's never any excuse for harshness. We must continue to pray for the people who are promoting the views we believe are in error. Just an aside, but a further danger in identifying error in the truth of the gospel is that often heresies begin that are just marginally wrong. But a trajectory that begins just one degree off will eventually end up very wide of the target. And that's why we need to test the spirits so carefully. Something that might appear quite innocuous might just be the thin edge of the wedge. Then what about opposition on judgment calls affecting relationships? If there's a difference of opinion where scripture is silent, we should discuss, listen to the other person's point of view, present our view rationally and logically. Shouldn't get angry, allow our emotions to run away with us, say things we would later regret, but show the forbearance, as Paul wrote, and look for compromise, win-win situations. Again, as Paul outlined in passages such as Romans 13 and 14. This isn't easy when the position we hold is one that we believe in very strongly. But what an example to non-believers where there can be disagreements, but relationships remain intact. May God give us, as a church and as individuals, the grace and the wisdom to have good disagreements. Amen.